This is a 3CR community radio podcast. In Psychedelia is broadcast every Sunday from 2pm. For more info on anything you hear in the show, head to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the Encyclopedia program page. Good afternoon, this is Encyclopedia on 3CR Community Radio, 855am digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. My name is Nick Wallace and as you just heard before, we will be uh, live broadcasting from the Entheogenesis Australis uh, psychedelic sy- symposium uh, in less than a month's time out in Eildon. Really looking forward to that one and um, uh, speaking to people from around the world who have been involved with uh, research and reform um, in various different capacities. Although obviously the the focus of the psychedelic symposium on uh, the advances uh, that have been happening around uh, psychedelic science, uh, culture, research, etc. Uh, this afternoon on the program um, with EGA just around the corner, uh, we have an interview that was conducted a few months back uh, by Dean and Melissa from the Australian Psychedelic Society with Ben Sessa, who is a uh, chemist from the UK uh, who's involved with uh, drug reform and psychedelic research in the UK. He will be over here for the Entheogenesis Australis uh, Symposium in December uh, alongside people like uh, Rick Doblin from the Multidisciplinary Association of uh, Psychedelic Studies, uh, David Nichols from the DMT Nexus Forum uh, community. Community uh, online uh, that discusses all things DMT, and this is where a lot of these uh, a lot of these uh, conversations have really um, formed and been forged around around the uh, the internet communities uh, that that opened up discussion on these once um, much more taboo or uh, certainly you know off to the side discussions uh, the internet communities, and this is before social media, but you know it's a it's continued um, with social media. It's just that social media has taken up a lot of people's attention. Um, so people tend to go to Facebook rather than something like the uh, the, the old forums that were really um, forerunners in, uh, in having honest uh, discussions about these things and even publishing underground research and all sorts of things like that. Um, so we're going to be hearing from uh, Ben Sessa a little bit later in the program. Uh, Ash not here this week. Uh, Ash is up at Strawberry Fields Festival uh, in, uh, well, just on the Murray River over on the New South Wales side. Uh, I did hear that uh, there was significant police operation, which has come to be expected with every uh, music festival of this nature. Um, I don't I don't know if you get the same thing at something like uh, uh, like the Melbourne Cup. I'm not sure everybody has to, has to have their uh, car searched and uh, sniffer dogs uh, gone over them if you're uh, going to something like the Melbourne Cup. Um, but that's what was going on. And because it's just over the border, uh, the, both Victoria and New South Wales police forces had set up their own operations uh, each side of the border, almost replicating what they were doing. Uh, New South Wales had sniffer dogs. Uh, Victoria did not. They were uh, uh, testing people um, in significant numbers. So we'll hear how everything went with Strawberry Fields. I, I hope everybody was uh, uh, has been uh, looking after themselves. I, I think they might have got a bit of mad weather uh, yesterday with the uh, with the thunderstorms and the heat and the up and down but you know that's what happens and also I hear that um, at the festival uh, Steph from uh, the coordinator from Dancewise uh, has been uh, w- was conducting a panel uh, alongside some other um, people who have been working really hard uh, for uh, more meaningful reform and you know we, we understand there's been a fantastic victory with the medically supervised injecting center and um, you know shouldn't be downplayed at all. Uh, it is a fantastic uh, win, but um, these 
these issues uh, are ongoing because we have prohibition causes a, a large amount of these issues. It makes drug uh, all, almost all issues around drugs worse um, by this policy that uh, that says that it's helping you, but also punishes those that says that it's helping at the same time. It's this. It's it. It's not legislation that works. It doesn't actually reduce harm in society. Um, if it's all about sending the the message, the message isn't getting through because more people than ever before. Uh, are, are taking um, substances so clearly you know something's not working and this is something that uh, uh, a New Zealand um, uh, academic and author Julian Buchanan uh, often focuses on in his own blog and on Twitter um, you can find him Julian Buchanan uh, on Twitter or Julian uh, Julian Buchanan wordpress.com is his blog uh, and his uh, his latest uh, piece is treating drugs as the problem when prohibition is the problem when promoting drug reform we should reject the deeply entrenched anti-drug narratives that have dominated drug discourse these narratives are often rooted in fallacy distortion and sweeping generalizations Instead, drug reform must maintain integrity and ensure arguments are firmly re- rooted in science, rationale, sci—sorry, uh, in reason, rationale, science, and evidence. We need to be clear: there is no global drug problem. We are strugg- struggling with a global drug policy problem, and the cause of this problem isn't gangsters; it's governments. Drugs can pose risks, but it's prohibition that makes drugs dangerous. Uh, that makes drugs dangerous. And it, but it's prohibition that makes drugs dangerous, not drugs per se. And he goes on to um, uh, make a number of points about the way that we discuss these things because it's almost guaranteed um, now. We we hope that there will be move uh, on on things like uh, pill testing over over summer. But um, it's something that uh, that you know the government can almost give them a little pat on the back. We've done our one drug policy thing, and you know they'll think because oh, you can almost see it. You know you, you try and make another change, and then people that don't know what they're talking about um we'll see it as uh you know just open liberalization that uh drug use for all uh when really the the problem is the policy that we're running with at the moment the policies that we're running with do not work and they actually create more harm they make things worse for people and it's systemic it's all the way through um and it's often uh also um policed in a way that is uh, discretionary often to the expense of um people that are in slightly worse off positions than maybe your your uh, uh, more upper class uh, uh, white person who uh, might be able to avoid uh, lots of the legal tr- troubles that uh, might be attached to their own uh, drug use um, and might have better access to, to health care or uh, mental health or uh, services or, or things like this. The problem is the policy. It's not the drugs. The drugs we need to understand because they're here. They're not going away. And I think that's something that we've uh, we we fool ourselves with sometimes uh, in these policy discussions. Uh, also, the Washington Post uh, this week reporting uh, on the truth behind the first marijuana overdose death headlines. And I, I hadn't actually seen this one uh, pop up this week, but I've had a busy week. It's getting into summer, and we've got a a lot of events coming up. But um, uh, apparently. There was a report of an 11-month-old in the US uh, who had passed away and it was being reported as the first marijuana overdose death. And for those who who aren't aware, uh, cannabis is a a relatively um, benign substance, in fact, a very benign substance when it comes to... uh, physiological like harm that it can actually cause um a lot of debate over the uh the the other effects um there might be you know it, it 
what I'm getting at is it's not something that can uh, kill you. It's not something that has that that ability to kill you. The, the lethal dose is uh, so high on it that you would um, uh, sooner die of uh, oxygen deprivation by smoking that much or you'd eat too much and just, I don't know, something would happen. But um, there have been a few ca- cases uh, throughout um, the past hundred years uh, being reported as uh, deaths caused by cannabis. Almost, uh, well, every single one has been... Um, a little bit further looked into and it wasn't cannabis that was the cause maybe um that there was a bit of uh uh Causa- uh, sorry, correlation without causation, and it appears to be that this is the case uh, with this latest one. It's the reporting has been re- reporting that it was caused by marijuana, uh, but the toxicologist had said that we're, ap- we're we are absolutely not saying that marijuana killed this child. Um, and uh, what they're saying is we're we're not saying. Uh, definitively that marijuana caused the myocarditis. Uh, All we are saying is we didn't find any other reasons, so we need to study this further. So the the 11-month-old infant had a heart issue. There appeared to be uh, cannabis detected as well, Um, and the... um, authorities were you know quick to point out it was it didn't appear to be uh, from what i'm reading here doesn't appear to be something that was uh necessarily even that uh negligent it was a uh unstable motel living situation uh that the parents were in so it might have been um because of poverty or something like that and uh the and this was in colorado i believe as well where cannabis is legal so the kid uh this this infant got their hands on on the cannabis and uh there was uh some kind of reaction that happened uh, or something had happened um, and this kid has passed away, this infant has passed away. Um, but it's what they're really trying to point out is that it's, as toxicologists, as scientists, they want to get to the bottom of something um, and it's really important to distinguish whether or not something is causative or uh, or correlative and, and find out, find those distinctive points. Uh, crossing over to Europe now um, and another number of European countries have been um, moving forward with medical uh, cannabis uh, legalization and regulation. Uh, Luxembourg was the latest to join them uh, with the Prime Minister, Xavier Battel, uh, saying that medical marijuana will be allowed to be used by those suffering from sclerosis, cancer, muscle spasms and chronic pain. Um, and it will be uh, fairly, uh, again, heavily regulated, as, as it often is in a lot of countries that are moving towards medical um, medical cannabis legalisation and regulation. Uh, but more accessible than uh, some of the schemes that we've seen rolled out across Australia. Uh, There's also new regulations in Poland allowing for the use of marijuana imported from other countries to make uh, prescription drugs that will be sold at pharmacies. So the pharmacies there um, will be uh, selling uh, medical cannabis. Um, Now, up at Strawberry Fields, uh, one of the... Oh, well, actually, if you want any more news, first up... Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, just jump on those uh, and look for In Psychedelia. Uh, we post all uh, all sorts of stories uh, during the week and videos and all sorts of other stuff. Um, there was a live video that was taken uh, at the Residence for Victoria Street Drug Solutions Group uh, discussion with Larry Campbell, who's from uh, Canada. He's an expert in medically supervised injecting centres in Canada uh, and was recently down uh, speaking with the Residence for Victoria Street Drug Solutions Group. Full video is up on the page. Uh, this is 3CR uh, in Psychedelia. My name's Nick uh, and we are going to be speaking... 
Oh, hearing soon from uh, Dina Mel from the Australian Psychedelic Society who caught up with Ben Sessa, uh, UK uh, pharmacist slash uh, drug reformer. Um, but right now, Amaru Tribe, uh, Amaru Tribe are a Melbourne-based band. They're right, uh, they're up at Strawberry Fields right now. But I thought uh, appropriate to put it on because I was uh, driving down Brunswick Street before and noticed that uh, the John on Johnson Street the um, Spanish Festival Day Fest is on. So if you're uh, looking for something to do today, maybe uh, go out and uh, uh, check that one out. This is Soy Campesino featuring Tonolek on 3CR. Vivo en la tierra agradecido Entre zapote y mamosillo Canto con alma de guajiro
time of year we once again are selling two delicious wines generously donated by local winemaking star and 3CR supporter Luke Lambert. At $17.50 these wines are a super bargain labelled especially for us and they're even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR at those summer festivities. Give us a call on 94198377 to order or you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Wines are available for collection from 3CR up until December 22. Ain't no mountain high enough to keep me from them. FreeCR Community Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. This is in Psychedelia and right now you're hearing uh, the voices of Dean and Melissa from the Australian Psychedelic Society who caught up with uh, Dr. Ben Sessa, uh, well, Ben Sessa from uh, the UK. Uh, ben Sessa will be in Australia uh, for Entheogenesis Australis Psychedelic Symposium uh, coming up in less than a month uh, out at Eildon. For more info, the website is entheo.net, E-N-T-H-E-O dot net. You're sitting here with myself, Dean and Melissa from the Australian Psychedelic Society. Uh, we're at the Psychedelic Science Conference here in Oakland, California, uh, the biggest meeting of psychedelic science that's held once every three, four years. Um, and we're sitting here today with uh, Ben Sessa. So welcome, Ben. Hi. Thanks yeah. for having me. Thanks ben, for joining us. Thank you. Ben is a research fellow at Imperial College London, the University of Bristol and Cardiff University, and in private practice, a child adult psychiatrist specialising in addiction. Thank you so much for coming, Ben. Thank you. My first question is, what is it that inspired you to first become interested in psychedelic research? Okay, um, there's really two separate streams that came together to take me into psychedelics. First was just personal experience of psychedelics um, in my youth and the excitement of the psychedelic culture and psychedelic writing and psychedelic music and the rave scene and the festival scene. So and what, what, what era are we talking about? Well, I was 18 in 1990, okay. so, so right at the peak of the rave times. Yeah, yeah. So, but before then, I, would, I'd, I'd, I was interested in all the literature, so I was always into the beat poetry and Kerouac and Artie Lang and 
Aldous Huxley and all of that stuff. And so I kind of came at it from quite an academic literary level at that point, then got into raving and all of the partying mm. and stuff. Then um, became, uh, then went to medical school and became a medical doctor and specialised in adolescent, men, child and adolescent mental health. And then what happened is over the years of treating my patients with traditional treatments, it became more and more apparent to me that the treatments we use in psychiatry are insufficient mm. and leave a lot of people, especially people with trauma, child and adolescent trauma, untreated. Mm. Um, it, it's pretty clear that a lot of the treatments, certainly the pharmacy treatments and a lot of the psychotherapies, they paper over the cracks. Mm. They mask the symptoms which is useful makes people feel a bit better to take antidepressants and not so not so low but it doesn't get to the core root and so what really drives me in the psychedelic research um, field is I really see these treatments as new and innovative and exactly what psychiatry needs yeah so it offers a new solution for psychiatry, and what, for such a long time, the current drugs haven't been producing the results you feel. Yeah, I think psychiatry has become a palliative care field, which is really poor. You know, if you're, if you're diagnosed with severe anxiety or neurosis problems or PTSD or addictions in your 20s or 30s because of severe child abuse and trauma there's a pretty good chance you'll be going back to your psychiatrist in your 60s or 70s. Yeah, so and that's a chronic illness as a It's a chronic illness. a chronic illness. And psychiatrists work in this, in this kind of atmosphere of we are palliative care doctors. Yeah. We don't cure. We don't use the cure word in psychiatry. We sort of use the, this might help you feel a bit better. Now, I don't think that's good enough, you know. And I think other, other fields of medicine wouldn't accept that level of learned mm. helplessness. So why so do we have not? to? Yeah, as even it's like um, I have heard you mention that you see MDMA as psychiatry's antibiotic, and I guess you know prior to antibiotics, we were just managing illnesses that right now we can cure with yeah. a short period of time. If previously would it resulted in a long death? Yeah. Can you expand on what you meant by that statement? Yeah. So with that analogy, it's a couple of things. Firstly, if we go back to say nineteenth century general medicine. Humanity was losing the battle to the infectious diseases. Mm. We were very good at epidemiology and categorizing and diagnosing smallpox and TB and all of the post-operative infections, but we were losing the battle. We could treat them symptomatically, mm. but we didn't know about the microorganisms and we didn't have antibiotics. Then in the early 20th century, discovered the antibiotics, started winning that battle. I think we're in a similar place in psychiatry today. We write these oh, the huge, DSM, we're very good at huge categorizing volumes, we? DSM, ICD. Uh, we, we have excellent epidemiology in psychiatry. We know who gets depression, who gets anxiety, who gets addictions, who has lifelong mental health problems. And we even know the cause, trauma. But we are giving these maintenance therapies, but not the antibiotic. So taking SSRIs for things like PTSD, it's like taking an aspirin if you have an infection. You know, if you've got an infection, you can take aspirin or paracetamol, lowers the temperature, makes you feel a bit better, mm. but it's not an antibiotic. Yeah. It doesn't get the bug. Mm. What I feel the psychedelic therapies do, and particularly MDMA, is it gives you, for the first time in psychiatry, a tool to actually go into the base trauma, deal with that, resolve it, overcome it, and then you're cured. I mean, mm. we don't use the cure word. It's weird, but yeah. Yeah, so maybe we should. So how does that work then? Like, So how do you see MDMA and psilocybin, for example, LSD, 
being able to enable that sort of change? How, do, how does it get you down into the cure? I think MDMA in particular, it's its capacity to allow you to be with the trauma without being overwhelmed by the negative affect. Mm. So if you think about it, if you've had some horrific childhood experience, by the time you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, you've built up years and years of defense and resistance. You'll do anything but think about that night when you were six years old. Mm. You'll become a heroin addict, an alcoholic, you'll self-harm, you'll attempt suicide, you'll be in and out of hospital, you'll take all the pharmacy that's thrown your way, but you, won't, you don't want to go there to that moment because mm. the moment the therapist says, tell me about your rape, you're out the door, you flee. Yeah. And that's why we have a 50% treatment resistance in PTSD. You know, 50% of people just do not get better. Mm. And it's because they can't engage with the specific index event. What MDMA in particular does is you can take the medicine with the therapist in that context and for the first time in your life, after carrying this in your head for 30 years, you can say, my God, I can... I can talk about that. God, it must be a huge relief to even yeah. be able to talk about it and think. And about it's not—it's not ecstasy, you know. It's not a beautiful euphoric experience. It's yeah. still difficult trauma-focused psychotherapy. Yeah. But with—I see MDMA as this kind of life jacket mm. that you wear that gives you just enough strength to do the work That's where fantastic. normally you can't. So that really is a breakthrough. Yeah. yeah um, I guess when the present moment becomes too painful to bear, like it does in trauma, mm. you need something to be able to make the present moment more comfortable and more acceptable. Is that what MDMA yeah, does? Yeah, it's about, it gives you the power to be there and not escape, yeah. which is what normally people do. You know, they'll do anything to not go to those memories. Mm. But what MDMA does is it provides such a powerful sense of loving kindness um, from an emotional point of view, that the patient can actually be with the trauma long enough to do some psychotherapy and talk it through. So and the crucial thing is it works and then lasts. Yeah. You don't have to keep taking it. Um, when you take the, the, the medicine as part of a, a course of psychotherapy, the therapy may be, say, 10 or 12 weeks or something like that, mm. and you'll take the medicine once, twice, maybe three times in that course, and then you get to the end of the course and you've made great resolutions. Yeah. So what is it exactly, so when they're able to relive the trauma and be with it, what is it exactly about that that helps uh, change their view about the trauma? That's a really good question because in a way, in the way I don't think it's particularly magical. Mm. It's simply being able to do that trauma work. Yeah. And so if you think about, what I, I think it moves p people from the 50% that can't do the trauma work into the other 50% who can. Mm. So if you think about normal trauma-focused therapy for PTSD, and you're in the group that can help benefit from it, tell me about your rape, tell me about your pain, tell me about your childhood, lots of tears, lots of pain, lots of mm. distress, but over the weeks you slowly resolve, rebrand, relabel, recognitively appraise the situation, and you come out of it a bit stronger. Mm. And that's fine, that's the 50% who can do it without yeah. MDMA. What I think MDMA does is it simply brings the other 50% into that group. Mm. It, it provides for the patient an opportunity to be with their trauma and do the therapy where previously they've just not been able to engage. Yeah. So comparing that to, say, psilocybin, for example, how would the mechanism of psilocybin differ to MDMA when we're dealing with... Uh, it might not be necessarily used for post-traumatic stress disorder, but, say dealing with a depression or a mm. severe anxiety. Mm. How, how would you say the mechanisms differ in a mm. psychotherapeutic sense? And psilocybin being the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. Yeah. Um, 
So MDMA is, is my preferred tool because I think it just ticks so many of these other boxes. But um, what classical psychedelics do, primarily they're these 5-HT2A partial agonists. Yeah. And so what they provide is this experience of opening up new neural networks, seeing things in a new way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, when, when drugs like this are used recreationally and dangerously, this can be a frightening experience. But th- if this is done in the context of a therapeutic relationship, um, you know, seeing things in a new way is a really good thing. Um, you know, we talk about with uh, psychedelics the idea of ego dissolution, the idea of stripping away these layers by how we define ourselves, um, which of course can be a frightening thing if you're taking the drug recreationally and you're, and you're not prepared for but it. But if you're a de- if you're say someone who's severely and chronically depressed, the way you look at yourself is not a good thing anyway. Absolutely. So if the label you hang around yourself is "I am useless," "I am worthless," mm. "I am unloved," "I am unlovable," "My parents didn't want me," "I may as well be a heroin addict or an alcoholic," mm. um, "promiscuous sex," "violence," "self harm," all the externalizing behavior that goes with not wanting to carry your label. Mm. The idea of using a tool that allows you to strip away these labels, when that's done in a controlled setting, to then rebuild the, rebrand the person again. Mm. Um, So that's one of the mechanisms. I think the other mechanism of all psychedelic therapies is just providing that patient with an experience of an attachment relationship with those Mm. therapists. Because I look at my patients, my adult patients with addictions, they've never, they've, they've never, they have no positive attachments in their life, never had. Mm. You know, their parents rejected them, they were bullied at school, they then found their way into the drug community and they're living hand to mouth on the, mm. with, with addictive substances. They've never had that opportunity to have a bonding attachment experience with mm. people who care about them and love them. And yeah. it, it is a kind of love. So transference, you would see, is a major part of this sort of therapeutic... It's really important, and and patients say that. They say, you know, I just, especially with MDMA, you know, I didn't know I had it in me to have this feeling. You know, I've heard people say in in the training that we've done, um, you know, people have talked about the word love, and I've kind of used it because I understand you're supposed to, and you're supposed to say that to your partner, but I've never really felt it. Mm. And now I can, I've felt what it was like on MDMA, and... Yes, it was a drug-induced transient experience, so you could argue, well, it's just an illusion, you're just high. But actually, it doesn't work like that. It, it, it gives them the permission to have that feeling for the first time in their life. And now they can remember that feeling. They too. can now they remember can, it. And now, now, every they, time they say love, they have a thing to refer absolutely. to. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, those of us, um, I'm assuming you guys are very stable people who um, have had lovely experiences when we use the word love. We were mm. thinking about our parents and our partners and, mm. and the lovely people in our lives. But if we haven't had those experiences, it's hard to to say that that's an experience you, you can describe. But mm. the point about the psychedelic therapies is it does provide this in a transient um, setting like that, but it generalizes. That's the point. It mm. lasts. Yeah. Mm, so this resetting of the self, um, being able to remove yourself from your current attachments and start from a fresh place is key to the psychedelic healing yeah. potential. Um I actually remember a story that you spoke of, of your experience of being a participant in one of the trials where you experienced this sensation. Can you hmm. describe for us what that was like? Yeah. I mean, in the last 10 years, I've been both a participant and a study doctor administering drugs um, on 
studies with MDMA, ketamine, LSD, psilocybin, and DMT. So <laughs> I've, I can, it's nice that I can sort of put my hand up and say I've legally taken yeah, all of those Yeah, I can't say drugs. many people have been on both sides of that fence. I don't think there's anyone else that's done all of the studies. Mm. So I think I'm kind of unique because various people have done one or two of them, but I've, I've done them all. Mm. They obviously just push me to the front of the queue because I'm a <laughs> sucker. Um, but yeah, one of the, say this ego dissolution experience, and this is with intravenous uh, psilocybin in a scanner, and... Um, I, that was the most intense experience. I just I was lying in the scanner, and you know this an MRI scanner is the very worst place to take it. You know you're you've got a, a needle in one arm, you've got a plastic tube up your nose, you've got straps across your oh. chest, you're strapped to a metal tray. You're strapped down. Yeah, because oh. they're measuring your your chest movements in a tube. Everyone else is 15 feet away behind a piece of lead or behind glass. This is a thing of nightmares. You're lying in this enclosed tube with this machine going, you know, it it makes dubstep sound really (laughs) nice. And then they inject the drug. And I had this experience of but uh, intravenous de- um, psilocybin is a bit like DMT. It's instantaneous. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's mm. sort of within 30 seconds, 60 seconds, you're from baseline to, like, tripping oh, wow. as hard as you could possibly imagine. Yeah. And I had this experience of lying in there, and I just thought, right, it, this is getting really, really frightening. It's really scary. What's going on? And I was trying to ground myself, and I was saying, right, I'm Ben. I'm a doctor. I've got a wife. I've got three kids. I'm in Cardiff. I'm in a scanner. It's okay. And then it's like, okay, I'm Ben. Uh, but I'm not sure where I am, but I know who I am, <laughs> but I don't know what's going on. Oh. And then it's like, okay, I don't know who I am, but I know I'm just some bloke lying in the scanner. I've had some assignment. And it's like, and then it was, okay, I'm not what, I don't have a body, I'm not really a person, but I'm some kind of notion floating somewhere. And then I'm not even floating because there is no inside or outside or up or down. There's no space or time everything has completely dissolved and disappeared. And at that point, I was totally terrified, awestruck with fear. I felt like I was sort of on my knees facing God, like in this final judgment type thing. Mm. It was absolutely terrifying. And then I was suddenly filled with this, this, this realisation. Well, if I've completely dissolved and all space and time has dissolved and nothing exists, then what do I have to fear? So it really was this sort of ego death type thing. And then I was filled with this tremendous sense of bliss because I suddenly had this realisation when you strip everything away, the fundamental particle that holds it all together is love. It sounds really corny, but that's sort of what I was filled with, just this white light of love. And then slowly, it takes about 45 minutes with IV psilocybin, they dragged me out of the machine, I'm like a piece of jelly. You know, <laughs> the layers started coming back and I remembered who I was and where I am and what I'm doing. And I was just left with this tremendous sense of afterglow and, and a real strong sense of what an important tool for my patients. Because, you know, the labels I hang on myself are all really positive things. Mm. But if the labels I hang on myself are really nasty, negative things, then it's great to be able to peel them off and put them back again. Because mm. mm. you can put them back together the way you want them as well. Yeah, because, right? you know, when we use them in the, in the studies with the scanners, there's, there's a certain amount of support. But when you're doing it in therapeutically, in, in a clinical setting, you know, there's all the weeks of preparation, mm. there's all the integration sessions, there's all the work with the therapist. So it's, it's not just the drug experience, and that's mm. really important. Mm. You know, when people say, I'd like to take MDMA to heal my, he- my, my trauma... Just taking the drug isn't going to do it. You've got to do it as part of a therapeutic program mm. yeah, because it's all—it's the planning, it's the preparation sessions, and it's particularly the integration sessions mm. that are so vital. This is in psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio. 
855 AM digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. You're hearing the voices of Melissa and Dean from the Australian Psychedelic Society who recorded this conversation earlier this year at the Psychedelic Science Conference in uh, Oakland, California, one of the biggest uh, psychedelic conferences in the world. Uh, But we have our very own psychedelic symposium going on in Australia, just in regional Victoria. Uh, That is the Entheogenesis Australis Outdoor Psychedelic Symposium, and it is happening on the uh, 8th till the 10th of December. So not far away at all, uh, people from all across the world coming to speak about psychedelic research, science, culture, uh, and also a lot on uh, ethnobotany um, plants and uh, and the plant world and the fungi world as well. Uh, they are speaking with uh, Dr. Ben Sessa. Uh, Dr. Ben Sessa, as you have been hearing, has been uh, involved with uh, psychedelic psychotherapy, especially uh, especially with MDMA, and has undergone um, uh, a lot of the a lot of the tests, uh, a lot of the research that's been going on in the UK. He has been uh, on at least one, if not both, sides of the uh, of the of the testing, uh, and he will be over in Australia for the Entheogenesis Australia. Psychedelic Symposium, uh, and we're going to continue now. Uh, Dean and Mel speaking with uh, Dr. Ben Sessa. And there's a little bit of a story. Yeah, that, that putting back on of the layers afterwards. So, for, for instance, it sounds like you were in a pretty secure place yourself, so putting back on the layers wasn't such a traumatic or difficult experience for you necessarily. Yeah. But for other people, it was like it, when they've dissolved down to that sort of complete dissolution of the ego and when we're putting back on the layers it forces them to sort of evaluate different layers in their life as they put them back on yeah and that's when as you say the integration is important because mm. that might it might not happen there and then when you're putting yourself back together but mm. those things that you're thinking of then they might come up weeks later or days later and or months later and, and in a way even the psychedelic therapy when that comes to an end the the, the course it's then what do you do with your life and it's really about going forward with a new lifestyle. Mm. So I think the point about psychedelic therapy, it's not just using the drug and it's not even just the course of therapy. It's the immersion into a whole new lifestyle. Mm. You know, do I need to be in this relationship in which I'm being exploited? Mm. Do I need to be using alcohol, high dose? Mm. You know, do I need to be chasing money? Um, so it, it's not like we're trying to turn everyone into hippies, mm. but I think there's a lot about the Western lifestyle that's very neurotic for people. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, a psychedelic drug is a really good way of just recognising that. I mean, you know, take LSD and wander around a supermarket, you'll, you'll laugh, won't you? Because you <laughs> yeah, recognise that 98% of the stuff on the shelves is totally superfluous and not needed. Mm. Yet we surround ourselves with all of this bling, yeah. where almost all of it is superfluous. It's and, a distraction. Yeah, and the psychedelics are such a good tool for reminding us of the really fundamental things that, that link us together as people. There's mm. no distraction when you're under a psychedelic. You've got to attend to the really important things. It requires which, attention. Mm. Yeah, well, that's a beautiful experience. <laughs> terrifying too, though. You know, it's terrifying. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was blissful. It was absolutely terrible. Because we like our labels. Yeah. You know, it's scary to not know what your name is Mm. or whether you have a body Mm. or who you are or where you are you know these labels keep us together Mm. but when it's done in a setting that you feel safe then it's a valuable thing to do Mm. you have the power to change your labels yeah and change your perception of yourself which is very powerful yeah something I I think that has been unrecognised for a long time in our history and our understanding of psychology that your states and your beliefs can change Mm. and with your conscious control you can be the driver 
Yeah. It's very difficult, though, because, you know, in my work with children and attachment relationships is all about how rigid that becomes, yeah. how difficult to change. Yeah, well. So taking it back to you as uh, the other side of the research boundaries, you said you've been involved in a lot of studies with various different drugs. I'm wondering what you've got uh, <coughs> planned for the future or what you're involved in at the moment. Okay, so all of the studies that we've been doing for the last 10 years have been mechanistic studies, but what we're really doing now is moving on to clinical work with patients. Yeah. So we have two MDMA studies that we're hoping to start this year um, in the UK. One is in Cardiff, um, and that is a uh, imaging study with patients with PTSD. Yeah. And the other's in Bristol, and that's with alcoholism. So the Cardiff study is, although we have a lot of data about um, how PTSD affects the brain in terms of the amygdala and prefrontal cortex and we have data about how MDMA affects the brain in healthy people with the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex what no one's ever done is take someone with PTSD put them in a scanner traumatise them and then give them MDMA Oh wow! so that's what we're doing so we're taking patients with PTSD severe treatment resistant PTSD um, double blind placebo control study in an fMRI scanner and while they're in there we're going to read them back uh, descriptions of their trauma and really take them back there to expose them to the trauma and then test them with MDMA and placebo, hoping to see that MDMA uh, has a subjective reduction in fear response mm. and also that we see the, same, the scan data that shows reduction in amygdala response and an increase in prefrontal response. Yeah. So that's in Cardiff. Yeah, that sounds like a That's awesome. a very important study. That will be very revealing for the mechanisms. I think it's good because, you know, in a way, it's not necessary to get the licence for MDMA. Um, and actually, if you look at most of the drugs we use in psychiatry, they don't all go through that kind of thing. But I think it's just going to be really interesting because all of the, all of the groups that are saying MDMA therapy works for PTSD, mm. to be able to sh show it with a bit of data that says, and this is exactly what happens in the brain mm. when people with PTSD take MDMA, yeah. I think that's really good. I mean, other people have scanned before and after therapy and looked at changes, but this will be the first study that induces the, the traumatic state under the influence of MDMA. Are you not worried about getting participants to get tied down in a scanner and relive their trauma? Mm. It's a really good question. So we've got a lot of safety measures in place, and it's you know the, it's two a male-female therapist pair are going to be running it, myself and a colleague. Yeah. So um, it, it's although we're not delivering therapy, yeah. it's, we're going to be delivering a facilitative environment. Mm. So if we are inducing trauma... We can, we can manage that. I mean, also, if you think about it, these are people who live with trauma every yeah. day. And I'm assuming it's not their first time they've, you've relived the trauma with them, like you may no, have we, before. No, we'd be doing some preparation yeah. sessions beforehand. Yeah. yeah, so I wouldn't just be um, going in blind. Well, the people who are in the control group have the opportunity to go through MDMA treatment too? Yeah, it's a okay. crossover. Yeah. So, that, so that we do 10 patients, uh, uh, 20 patients. They, they, they are randomised into MDMA or placebo first. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like that's a awesome right study. Then. Yeah. So that's good, and that's and then the Bristol study, um, which I'm particularly excited about, is with patients with alcohol dependence, mm. um, and we're we're taking them after detox, so they have a medical detox with uh, a, a, a high high dose benzo called chlordiazepoxide, which is a typical community detox regime. Yeah. They come out of that dry, so they've stopped drinking mm. and they're they're kind of cured of the physical dependence, and then they go into our ten week MDMA therapy course 
which is uh, weekly sessions and then two sessions with MDMA in the middle, spaced two or three weeks apart. Yeah. Um, now, this is an uh, open-label study. There's no control group because it's, it's really a kind of proof-of-concept study. Yeah, it's, no one's, it's first of its kind. Really. Absolutely. I mean, there's been no addiction studies with MDMA anywhere. So this is the oh, first ever addiction yeah. study with MDMA. Exciting. It's exciting, and it might not work, you know, yeah. but we're just going to have a go. Um, one of the things, if you look at the addiction studies with psychedelics, whether it's, you know, Matt Johnson's nicotine study, all the Osman stuff in the 50s and 60s, mm. Kropitsky with ketamine, um, Bogan shots with alcohol, and all the work that Griffith's done, what they've all found is the greater therapeutic effect comes from the higher mystical spiritual yes. experience. Yeah. That sense of ego death. Yeah. yeah, so whether that's with LSD or psilocybin or with ketamine. So that is not so pronounced with MDMA, you know. Mm. MDMA has a different sort of effect, but it, it, it's not really known for its mystical spiritual effects. Mm. About 10 to 15% of people taking first-time threshold MDMA will describe spiritual effects, but that's in comparison to the 80 or 90% that mm. will say that with a classical. So that bit is sort of missing. Yeah. But what, what is there is the immense effects on trauma. Yeah. And for my work in addictions, 98% of my patients with addictions to whatever substance have had a childhood traumatic history. Yeah. So it's a kind of combination of those two ideas to sort of think, well, this could work. Yeah. It's definitely worth exploring. Yeah. I am curious, um, once that has been studied, once we know the changes that occur with MDMA alone, if something like the combination of MDMA and a psychedelic could be then studied? Well, <laughs> down the line, there are so many potential opportunities. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the moment, I mean, that's, that's, it's a good question because the other thing about this is we're broadening MDMA out a bit away from PTSD. Mm. I mean, we've got a It works work so well with, with PTSD for that one yeah. particular reason. So it is interesting to see if it can yeah. work in other mechanisms. And actually, as a psychiatrist, if you ask any psychiatrist, sort of trauma seems to underlie so much of psychiatry, whatever mm. the diagnosis. So we can move away from pure PTSD as a diagnosis with so MDMA. What's your, what's your sort of prediction then with this study? Because it is a different mechanism. And as you say, it doesn't bring the mystical experiences so much. So what are you sort of expecting? Well, because it's an open-label study and primarily a feasibility and safety study, the main thing we really want to get out of it is that everyone safely takes MDMA and nobody yeah. dies. And all those, that's the kind of data that, that we're going with. Now, if a few of them don't drink as much at the end of it, that's a bonus. Mm. But that's not really our major outcome. Yeah. Um, but we do think they'll, that it'll work. We think it'll be a very powerful study to help people not to drink. Mm. I mean, part of the reason we chose alcohol is because alcohol... Well, part, one reason is that alcohol is so prevalent. Mm. Um, in the UK, it's just a horrendous mm. situation. Yeah. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but Australia. It's really, it's just off the scale now. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a very important problem. And the other reason is the treatments are pretty poor. Yeah. You know, the, the relapse rates post-detox at three years are about 80%, yeah. 90%. If you are a daily dependent drinker and you go through a course of whatever, AA, CBT, mm. all of this, 90% have relapsed within three years. Yeah. That's an outrageous statistic. Yeah. So we figured if we can do any better than that, we're going to get good results. Yeah. And if your personal experience with your patients and the percentage of people with trauma, then it's likely to have a high mm. impact as yes. well. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's the unresolved trauma that leads to the... Really, the relapse. Yeah. yeah, it's like you know they will have gone on the course, they'll have got dry, they've gone to AA, mm. and then something emotional will happen that will trigger. 
the traumatic experience again. Yeah. And so the hope is that MDMA is going to provide them with a, a, a stronger grounding. So how much of a percentage of your patients would you say? Because I, from my views on addiction and from my experience with knowing people with addiction, there is a lot of people that suffer from trauma and try to escape from the reliving of trauma or any of the symptoms that come along with um, suffering from trauma. But there's also a high percentage of people or a percentage of people that have an existential sort of escape. So people that aren't really living an authentic life, they don't really know what they want to do, they're bored and they're just, it's mm-hmm. like they, they just, rather than dealing with facing up to what they want to do with their life, they'll sort of escape into drugs as yeah. well, or alcohol. And alcohol is, it's the devil's, it's the devil's drug. Yeah. It's like people will start when they're a teenager drinking on the weekends and then all of a sudden they might yeah. go into a job they're not happy with and all of a sudden yeah. they're drinking every day to escape. Well, it's interesting because I don't see a big distinction between those two groups because yeah. when you really dig down into those people, I mean, who say there isn't severe childhood trauma, there'll be some kind of issues in the childhood. That's mm-hmm. what I've found. Okay. So, of course, there's the severe traumas that sort of hit the radar for social services like physical abuse and sexual abuse. Mm. But my experience in psychiatry has been that the emotional abuse mm. and the neglect, the insidious, small experiences of childhood that were very negative Mm. are extremely damaging, much more so than we think. And we think about child abuse and we mm. think about the, the biggies. Yeah. But actually, if you're a child growing up in a family, you sort of feel, I, all of my patients, you know, some of them when I talk to them about their childhood, they'll say, yeah, I was physically abused or sexually abused. Others will say, I, none of that happened, but I just, I don't think my mum ever wanted me. Yeah. I never felt as good as my brother. I don't think my yeah. dad really liked me. They never really played with me. They never really mm. praised me. I always felt as if I was in the way. So I think that that kind of trauma, that kind of child abuse, often goes under the radar. Mm. But when you look at lifelong mental health problems and addictions, I think it's very, very high, if not 100%. Yes. Yeah. Now, I think one of the things about addictive drugs like alcohol or other drugs like cocaine or heroin is, of course, anybody, if you take them enough, can become physically addicted, mm. uh, addicted to them. But the majority of us um, just don't because the other things in our lives outweigh them. Mm. So if I was to use a drug like alcohol or cocaine um, or cannabis or any kind of drug on a Friday or Saturday night, come Sunday night, I want to stop. Yeah, you've, because got, you've got things important. I've got my Monday. family. I want to go to work on Monday. Mm. I, I value my job. I like my house. I like mm. my car. I like my life. And, yeah. and I've got all these positive things. If I was living in some terrible circumstances with no opportunity, no money, no job, no mm. education, no employment, may as well be drinking another pint at 9 a.m. on Monday morning. Yeah. So actually, although the substances themselves are addictive, addiction has nothing to do with substances, and this is what's interesting, and I say this to my patients, you know, the drugs are a red herring. Yeah. Addiction is a psychological state of mind that emerges very early in life as a result of the attachment relationship. Well, drugs are just their personal medicine, really. They're just they? the catalyst, and if you've had a crummy life, and then someone at 14 hands you a crack pipe, you're going to go for it. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I'm talking very black and white here, and of course yeah. there's a whole shades of grey, but that does tend to be my experience with my patients. Mm. Addiction, addiction is about a psychosocial state of mind. So psychedelics aren't going to change the environment of what these people are in, but it will change potentially their reactions and their interpretations of their environment, which may enable them to move out of it. Or Absolutely, because one of the problems with um, these environments in childhood and early adolescence is you then tend to recreate them throughout your life. People then to, 
you know, people who are abused as children tend to drift into exploitative relationships. Mm. You'd think there'd be a sort of default setting in the brain that sort of says, I've had a crummy childhood, but now I know I'm not going to do that as an adult. Yeah. But unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. The way attachment and development and developmental psychology works is the experiences you have in childhood become the blueprint for how you run your life. Mm. It's a real design fault in the brain. Yeah. Yeah, that is not functional. Um, on a lighter note, um, I have a question for you. On a lighter note, <laughs> if you could, and it can be related to this, in fact, though, if you could create a meme or a viral thought that you could spread throughout humanity, what would it be? Wow. Um, to do with psychedelics? Anything you want. Well, if it's anything, then it's obviously be kind to people. Mm. I mean, that's kind of what it's all about. Yeah. I mean, because that would stop all the trauma, that would stop everything else if your parents were actually kind to you, if your friends. I mean, to give you a slightly more sophisticated answer based on my work with developmental psychology, I guess it would be the world is a lovely place. And if you look out onto the world and you see pain, exploitation, people who want to cheat and lie and hurt you, you're wrong. Sounds very arrogant, but you're wrong. Most people everywhere are, are, are really nice. Mm. Almost everyone is lovely. Mm. Almost everyone you can trust. Mm. Almost everyone wants to help other people. I truly believe that's true. Yeah. And if you look out on the world and you don't see that, it's probably because you've made inferences about the world through what happened to you when you were little. Yeah. And when you're little, you build up this blueprint that then sticks. So you can reboot that narrative. Mm. You can. You just need to have enough positive experiences. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, I agree. I, I think that if also if you have experienced pain and you expect negativity from the world, you will actually find it. Yeah. Pat- our brains are very good at pattern recognition. It does, and it, yeah, it's a defense mechanism, and why not? Because, and I say this, say when I'm seeing with a teenager, you know, I go to see them in the ER department and... The rest of the nurses and doctors are being very negative to this kid who's cutting herself, over- overdosing, and they'll say to me before I go in, oh, doctor, you know, don't talk to her, she's manipulating, she's attention-seeking, she's in here every night. I go up to this girl and I'll say, good for you for seeking attention. You deserve yeah. attention. You are a feral survivor of your childhood. If you didn't lie, cheat, steal, manipulate, you'd have died because no one was going to feed you when you were five years old. Mm. So you've turned into this young person or young adult who is now public enemy number one, lying, cheating, stealing, self-harming, overdosing, waste of space, and that's how people see this. And I say to them, you don't have to be like that because the world isn't, doesn't have to be as harsh as you think. Mm. It's just the experiences you've had. You deserve attention. You have my attention. Now let's talk. Yeah. That's a beautiful and inspiring message for, I'm sure, many people out there. Um, we're coming close to running out of time, but there's a couple of things that I sort of wanted to finish off, um, if possible. First of all, because we are here at Psychedelic Science 2017, um, I wanted to hear what's, what talk or what topic you're most looking forward to seeing or have already seen since we're halfway through. And that's about um, the end of it, that the Psychedelic Science Conference was uh, held earlier this year in Oakland, California, and you heard the voices of Melissa and Dean there from the Australian Psychedelic Society speaking with Dr. Ben Sessa, uh, and Ben will be in Australia at the Entheogenesis Australis 2017 Psychedelic Symposium, uh, 8th till 10th of December, where we are going to be live broadcasting a uh, panel discussion on... uh, 
well, what, uh, where we are in terms of drug policy, perhaps some of the uh, uh, implications of some of the more recent prohibitionist moves, um, but then also some of the uh, uh, more positive side of things uh, coming from um, the research that's been happening, the reform that's been happening around the world, and um, talking about these, uh, you know, what, what are the steps forward? Because there are big and complicated questions. I think this is this is the um, the, the real meat, the real like the the, the juicy centre of the drug discussion is not whether or not we should reform it's what reform looks like it's it's imagining a post prohibition world and and figuring out the problems that we're going to have to face then because we know that there are many issues around drugs we know that many of them aren't just caused by drugs a lot of the issues are already inside of us or are um, exacerbated by our legal system or the way our institutions the way that these go about things and we need to be able to imagine uh, how to overcome these problems and I think that's um, the most important thing anybody can do that's an activist or advocating for anything Uh, this has been in psychedelia we will be back um, from 2 p.m next week Uh, queering nair is up next on 3cr i'll see you later this is in psychedelia comments complaints or contributions are welcome jump on the 3cr website 3cr.org.au and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, DirectLine provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. In Psychedelia, we'll be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. You've been listening to a 3CR community radio podcast of Encyclopedia. Find us on Facebook and Twitter.